passages open uh, as we go through it. Uh, let me pray for us before we dive in. Oh, Father God, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. And we pray that as we look at it now, you might speak to us powerfully uh, through it, that you would encourage our hearts and spur us on to live for you in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, uh, an evening like today, blazing sun, is, there's no time to be thinking about Christmas. But, uh, but I found myself this week thinking about what is um, really the only good Christmas film, in my opinion, the, the best by far, um, which, of course, is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I hope you've, you've seen it. Um, if you've not seen it, then the basic premise is uh, this, this chap here, George Bailey, He is a kind family man who has lived a life of great self-sacrifice and generosity. Um, But despite this, he finds himself in a whole load of trouble through no fault of his own. And so God decides to send an angel down to earth to help him. And there's an interesting little exchange at the start of the film, which I've often pondered over the years. Uh, It's an exchange between the chosen angel, Clarence, and Joseph, who's dispatching him on his mission. They're all stars at this point. Don't watch the film for any kind of theology or anything like that. There's lots of errors with it. But anyway, the exchange uh, goes like this. Uh, Joseph says to Clarence, a man down on earth needs our help. And Clarence says, splendid, is he sick? And Joseph replies, no worse. He's discouraged. No worse. He is discouraged. And I've often wondered over the years why it is presented here that discouragement is a worse thing than being sick, because instinctively, to me anyway, being sick feels like a far worse thing. Um, but I guess being ill it primarily affects our bodies, doesn't it? And, and usually there's the hope of getting better or, or things improving at least. But being discouraged affects us on a much deeper level in our hearts and our souls, and sometimes it can feel like there's very little hope of things changing. And as a Christian, thinking particularly of our spiritual lives, then I can see how deflating it can be to be discouraged in faith. I know myself that there are all sorts of things in life that can make me discouraged in my faith. It could be my own stubborn sins, repeatedly failing to please God, thinking, why after all these years am I still uh, going to that same habit? Am I ever going to be rid of them? It could be the difference between Um, the the zeal and the joy that I long to feel more for God and serving him and my experience. It could be the the culture around me, just seeing how it seems to be increasingly just turning away from God in all sorts of ways, and the gospel seems to have less impact than it maybe once did. Or it could be persecution, maybe just small ways, being mocked or, or frowned upon by friends or family for my beliefs. Or worse, seeing others around the world who face much more serious persecution. All of those things can, to me, be discouraging and make me sometimes think, you know, is this, is this worth it? Is it worth it keeping going, following Christ? Is it worth the sacrifice? Can I even keep going anyway? Perhaps you can relate to some of those things yourself. Well, the book that we're looking at tonight, the final part of our series in Hebrews, the, the author of the book has been writing to a group of, dis- of Christians who are hugely discouraged and feeling the pressure of following Jesus, a group of people facing very real 
temptations and persecutions, reasons to give up on their faith. And as we come to the end of the book tonight, the the author concludes with this wonderful prayer that uh, you may have recognized as Matt read it for us, verses 20 and 21. Uh, It's a prayer that's often said at the end of church services. It's it's a great way to send people out into the week ahead. And we're going to spend most of our time thinking about the content of that prayer and how it might encourage us in our faith tonight. But I just want to spend a minute before we do that thinking about the book as a whole, because I think it'll help us to appreciate this prayer even more. If you've not read the book of Hebrews before in its entirety, I I really would encourage you to do that. It is a cracking book. It's a very different sort of book from the other New Testament uh, letters. It's a bit of mystery to it. We don't know who wrote it, but clearly it was an established Christian leader. And he was writing to what was most likely a group of Jewish Christians, that is, converts from, from Judaism to Christianity, who were living in an otherwise non-Jewish community, perhaps Rome or somewhere like that. And the style of the letter suggests it's actually more of a a sermon that's been written down more than a typical letter that you might get of, say, Paul or Peter. In verse 22 of our passage tonight, the author describes this book as an exhortation. He says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly... I wonder if you had a little smile uh, when, when you read that. Um, it probably would have taken about an hour for the whole letter to have been read out in the original Greek. If you put David Suchet on and listen to the English version, 47 minutes. So maybe we don't think of that as brief. But brief uh, in comparison to all the things that the author could have said um, to encourage them. Because that's what he's been doing for the previous 12 and a half verses. He has been imploring his readers to persevere in faith by pointing them to Jesus again and again seeing how he is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies and offers full and certain forgiveness by his death and resurrection. I asked Matt to read a little bit of the start of chapter 12, just to give us a flavor of that. Let me, let me just read those verses again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That is, in a nutshell, the thrust of the whole book. And so we come to this closing prayer from tonight. And we're going to look at these verses under a couple of headings just to help us understand them. So firstly, know the God who saves us. Know the God who saves us. This is the first thing that this prayer is encouraging us to do. Do you see how the writer describes God at the start of the prayer? Now may the God of peace. You see that name name of God of peace. I guess there are lots of ways that he could have described God, lots of titles he could have used, but here he chooses to start his prayer with the God of peace. I wonder if you've had that experience of starting a new job and um, or or a new academic year at college maybe, and you're going to have new teachers, and before you meet some of them, some other colleagues give you a heads up about what they're going to be like. You know the sort of thing, oh, you know, that that boss of yours, he's quite a nice chap, but, but, but don't ever be late to a meeting, Okay. 
or, or she's a lovely, lovely lady, um, but if you want her to do anything for you, go and speak to her in person. Think, things like that. They, they kind of give you a heads up to what someone's like, and it affects how you relate to them. Well, I think here, the author is deliberately giving us a way to relate to God that will help them as they keep going in faith. God is a God of peace. So what kind of peace is he talking about? Well, I think it's more than just a kind of feeling of peace. The rest of the verse explains. He's the God of peace who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. See, the peace that the writer's talking about here is the peace between God and us, between God and humanity. It's the peace between a God of holy perfection and a people who have rejected him. But through Jesus have been forgiven and brought back into relationship with God the Father. That's the peace that the writer's talking about. And notice how certain this peace is because it's been bought with the blood of the eternal covenant. That is by Jesus' death and his resurrection. See, Jesus' death and resurrection, it wasn't just an incident in the history of time. It was something that was planned long before time even began. A plan for God, the perfect son, to come to the earth and willingly lay down his life as a sacrifice. And for God the Father to raise him back to life in the power of God the Holy Spirit. To bring them hope of eternity and paradise with God for all who would believe that message. See, this is the God who the author wants his hearers to know deeply, to be confident to approach in prayer. If you remember the the first audience that the author was writing to were, were Jewish converts to Christianity. And as they faced trials and doubts, they were tempted to go back to the Jewish customs that they knew as the basis of their relationship with God, even, even perhaps for salvation. I, I, I tend to do the same, I think, when we feel disheartened. We move away from, from resting in the character of God, what he's done for us in Christ, and go back to some kind of religion-based experience, existence, where we think again maybe we need to earn God's favor with our works, with our church attendance, with our rotor filling, with a number of quiet times this week, and, and so on. Things like that are ways to earn his favor. But that's a dangerous path to go down, not least because there's no way we can live up to those standards. And it's not what God wants from us either. That isn't how God wants us to relate to him. You see, this verse says that the starting point for moving away from discouragement is to remember the God who saved us, to fix our eyes upon him and delight in his love for us, to revel in the peace that he has brought us through Christ, whose blood was shed as part of an eternal covenant that can never be broken. There is absolute security with him that can never be shaken. God is a God of peace. And see how Jesus is described here as the great shepherd of the sheep. A shepherd, one who is tenderly caring for his people, leading them with compassion and wisdom, protecting us with faithfulness. So when life feels like a challenge, when we feel discouraged and the world seems a tough place to be part of, let's fix our eyes again on the God who has saved us, And let your souls be refreshed by knowing him anew. 
So that's the first thing this prayer encourages us to do, to know the God who saves us. That's the first point and the most important point. It's the starting point for, for moving away from discouragement. And then after that, we can go on to the second point, which is to know that the God who saves us will equip us. To know that the God who saves us will equip us. Let me read from verse 20 again. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our friend George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life He'd, he'd found himself in a situation where he just couldn't see a way out of. He felt utterly ill-equipped for the challenging, challenges that he was facing. And there's a lovely scene where, where George and a whole host of other characters, they start praying. They start praying that God would help him. Well, that's often the way it goes in, in films, isn't it? You know, all other hope has been expunged. They're, they're, the human resources are, have run out. And now, now it's time to pray. There's nothing else we can do but pray. And we can be like that, can't we? We can be like that. We can, uh, we can find reasons not to pray to God. I think that's the main one. I, I'm going to give you three reasons why I think we don't pray. And here's one of them. One is self-reliance. This is one reason we don't, don't pray. We think we can do things in our own strength, and we don't pray that God would equip us instead. I think there's a real culture of individualism and self, self-reliance, independence in this country. I spent, I spent 12 years in Oxford, and I've been here for nearly five years. They are very similar in their approaches. They are cities that glory in personal success and workaholism, whether that's at school or in academia or in the workplace, on the science park, wherever it is. They love that. They celebrate that. And that attitude, it can seep into our, our spiritual life as well. It stops us praying because we think we don't need to. But we must. We must. You know, I have to tell you that Cambridge and Oxford are not normal places. Probably most places in this country or in the world, they don't have that same self-reliance. They know that they need help, whether that's from God or from people around them. It would, it would do us well to get back to that realization that we need help, most of all, from God. Because living self-reliant lives will only lead us away from God, and it will keep making us discouraged. Psalm 127 starts, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. We must pray to God. We must pray that he equips us, that we might please him. And that's the first reason we don't pray prayers like this. The second reason is this, I think sometimes we don't believe that God can help us. We don't believe that God has the power to help us. Maybe we've, we've been Christian for a long time, and we know that there's that, that habit that we just haven't been able to break, and we just think it's never going to happen. Or we see a circumstance that we're in. We've been in it for a long time. We think we're going to be stuck in it, and we think it's terrible, and we can't understand why God has left us in it, and we get discouraged. So we don't pray. Well, maybe we, it's not so much it's God's power that we doubt, but it's does he even want to? Is he the sort of God who would want to help us? Well, do you see how verse 20 rebukes that wrong thing, thinking? 
the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. God is a God who has worked miracles. He has brought the Lord Jesus back from the, from the dead. And it is that same power that it is working us. And see how the, the author spells it out in verse 21. Just look down with me. See who it is that is working in us. It is God who will equip you. It is God who will equip you to do his will. May he work in us through Jesus Christ. See, four times the author makes it clear that it is God who is working in us for God. So let's stop doubting that he has the power or the will to change us. Even if we can't always see what he's doing. Even if we don't always get the answers to prayer that we want. Let's not doubt that he has the power and the will to work in our lives for good. And thirdly, a third reason I think we, we maybe don't pray as we should is that although we do want to please God, perhaps also we want to please ourselves or others more than we want to please God. Now, you know, we're a sinful people. Um, we'll always find that tension in us as believers. There'll always be a mixture of, of longing to glorify God, but knowing our sinful nature pulling us away from that. And look, make no mistake, as we've just seen, it is God who works in us for his purposes. But that doesn't mean that we don't make every effort to try and please him with our lives. The writer has made that abundantly clear in the rest of the book. We are to strive to please him. So it's always worth some self-reflection, I think, on areas of our lives to see where we might be losing that battle or even to spot a general kind of drift away from wanting to please God and pleasing ourselves instead. What might it look like if we're drifting away, if we're pleasing ourselves more than God? Lots of reasons, lots of reasons. I guess it might mean that we, that we tolerate that sinful habit instead of striving to fight it. I guess it might mean that we'll skip that church service or small, gather, small group gathering because it's more comfortable to have a night in front of the TV or the cricket. It might mean that when the boss asks us to, to do something that we know is slightly unjust or unkind, or perhaps they want us to, to stay late when our family is waiting for us at home, then we'll say yes because we want to please him, stay in his good books, boost our chances of promotion more than we want to please God. Lots of examples. I trust that there might be some things coming to mind as I speak. We must reject those reasons. We must, we must pray to God. We must ask him to equip us for, for everything good, for doing his will, and working us what is pleasing to him, not for our own glory, but for Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, there's a sense, an important sense, that God has already equipped us with all we need to please him. He has given us his spirit, as we've seen, to be our counselor, to be our, our guide. He's given us his, his words to read every day, to know what it looks like to live a life that is pleasing to him. And he's given us a community of people to share life with, to, to spur each other on, encourage each other as brothers and sisters together. As Christians, we have those gifts already, and we must treasure them, make, make use of them. But also this prayer says we've got to pray as well. Prayer is the means that God has given us to grow our dependency upon him and to work in us as he answers those prayers. 
And you notice we do that. That is such an antidote to discouragement as well. As we remember the security that we have in Christ, the relationship that God has given us, and as we start to seek his glory above our own, then those things that discourage us become less and less important. And the joy that we have in Christ in this world now and in the world to come, they become more of our delight, more of our treasure. And it won't dishearten us so much when we see our good deeds seem to be done uh, without impact because we know that God our Father sees them and is glad because they were done for his glory. Let me come back to um, It's a Wonderful Life just one last time. If you've not seen the ending before, then I won't give it away, but um, I will say that George Bailey's life of, of sacrifice and generosity, well, it's proved to have been worthwhile. It's not been unfruitful because God has seen how he has lived and because the people around him that he's encouraged and lived for have seen it too. It does not go unrewarded. It really is a wonderful life in the end. You see, seeking to please God and his people is always a good thing. And we won't, we won't always see the difference in living for him now. We won't always see it. But we will see some. And we will see it in the world to come. Bring it to more of a Christian context. We had lunch last Sunday with, with Sarah Hamilton and, and some friends of ours who, who normally live in northern Iraq. Uh, tough place to live, seeking to witness uh, to Kurdish people out there. And chatting to them as they're back for a couple of months. You know, they, they, they felt discouraged. They felt a little discouraged in their life. It's a tough place to live in lots of ways. And they feel like they're not seeing much fruit from their endeavors. But they are honestly some of the most faithful, godly people I know. And they, just like us, need to remember that God is committed to them, to working in them and through them. What they are doing is good and pleasing because they're seeking to serve him. And it is always worthwhile. I've tried to pray this prayer for myself and and for you every day this week as I've been preparing this talk. Why not pray this prayer for yourself uh, this week and for others and see what impact it has. So just as we close, I want to just finish by quickly looking at those final verses. Uh, let me read them again from verse 23, uh, from 22, sorry. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I've written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I'll come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, it'd be easy to dismiss um, these verses, a bit like a PS at the end of a letter from your mum when you're at university. You know, make sure you're eating your vegetables. Grandpa John says hi, that kind of thing. But actually, these verses give us a really practical insight into what it looks like to be living uh, a life of encouragement. See, it's a verse, it's a letter written. Yes, it's a sermon, but it's also a real person writing to real people that he knew and loved. And these are just the sorts of things that we'd expect from someone who is involved in the community of faith to write. See, he's concerned, firstly, that they listen to what he's written to them, verse 22. He longs for them to take his words seriously so that they would persevere in faith. And that's the sort of concern we should have for one another. When we gather here on a Sunday or in our midweek small groups, this is why we should keep meeting together. It's great to catch up about the cricket and so on. But 
even better is to chat about what we've been hearing, what we've been learning from God's words, and encourage one another to keep going in faith, to spur one another on, just as he's doing here, taking God's word seriously. And then secondly, see how he shares news of other Christians to encourage them. See how he says their brother Timothy has been released from prison? It's good news, and he wants to share it with them, to encourage them, and hopefully to go and visit with Timothy at some point soon. And then at the end of verse 24, he writes that those from Italy send their greetings too. Clearly another group of believers who they would have known. And it's just a simple hello. They, send, they say hi, isn't it? This sort of thing we might say to each other. But it's these, these small things that are reminders of partnership in the gospel that can be so encouraging. I'm terrible, terrible at keeping in touch with old friends around the world. But I'm always encouraged when they get in touch with me and I hear how they're getting on. It's a joy when, when I hear from mission partners or when they, they visit us. Or even when someone pops something on, on Facebook, a Christian brother just sharing how they're going, getting on with Christ. It's encouraging. It's encouraging to hear things like that or to see people like I did last week from, from Iraq. Just see how they're getting on as they follow Christ. So let's be doing that sort of thing as well. That's a great thing for us to do. Why not, why not write a letter or send a Christmas card now we're thinking about Christmas. Send a Christmas card to mission partners. Perhaps you're in a small group that have got a mission partner you're attached to. Why not get in touch with them and encourage them? Why not write a letter to those in your dorm room uh, that you were on summer camp with or your fellow leaders? Even just a text to that friend who you've not seen for a few months just to say hi, see how they're getting on. Little things like that are what we need to keep going as brothers and sisters in Christ. So this week, when we, uh, if you find yourself feeling discouraged in faith, I want to use these verses, use this prayer in particular, to encourage ourselves to keep going. Let's fix our eyes again on the God who has saved us, who's done everything to bring us into secure relationship with him. And to pray that he would work in us and through us to do his will, that we might please him in all that we do and say. I'm going to give you a moment just to pray now on your own, uh, silently. And then David's going to come and lead the rest of our time together.